Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Tracy McNeil from Materna Medical. In this episode, Giovanni and Tracy discuss the Stanford Design Program, how Materna Medical was founded, their two seed rounds and Series A round, why she called a Series 2A round, the Ignite Fire Pitch, the importance of naming your round properly, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Tracy McNeil. Tracy, thank you very much for joining us here on MedTech Money, the podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I want to thank you for your time because the purpose why we're here is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. And so my goal here was to extract insights and anecdotal stories from investment bankers, investors, entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and for generations of first-time entrepreneurs or investors to come. So what I imagine this audience being is likely a mixture of experts and novices. And what I wanted to do was extract your stories, insights, advice, so that we can share with what I imagine is that first-time founder or CEO that has no clue on what lies ahead of them on that journey of raising capital or even how to go about it. So I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. Well, thank and you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. And the, the purpose of why you and I are here is not only to get the word out there, congratulations on raising your Series A. We'll get into that and you can tell that story. Um, but I wanted to know, what is it like to be a CEO raising money for the first time? What is that process like? What is that learning curve like? And we're going to get into your background and then also talk about, I'll spoil it, Materna Medical, um, and then talk about that actual process that you just successfully closed. And then we're going to get into um, the differences of angels versus venture capital and that early stage financing, and then put a little spin on it and women in med tech as well. So before we get into all that, I have three open-ended questions that I wanted to ask you before we jump into all the other additional introductions. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And do you think I'm missing anything else crucial or important? Oh, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I think in the end, yes. Uh, I mean, it's about innovation. It's about healing. It's about helping people. Um, but without the right people and the right money, it's not possible, right? So yeah, I'll go with lifeblood. I'm going to go yes on that. <laughs> nice. Perfect. And so 
we're going to hear about your career and how you've developed that, but now you're the CEO of Materna Medical. If you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? Oh, I would have absolutely done it all over again. And I would have done it sooner with less reservation. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. It's a good my, time. My, my last one is Materna Medical. There's usually a story behind how a name is created. Sometimes it's a shorter story. Sometimes it's a longer story. But what does the name of your company mean, Materna Medical? Oh, this is a really great example of crazy startup life. So um, I think it's important to say I'm not the founder of Materna. Um, and it's an honor for me to, to have taken over. It's been um, just a delight. I've been the CEO now for two years. Uh, the board recruited me to take the products to the commercialization phase. And um, I, I inadvertently also got to preside over the COVID pandemic. Um, but it's been a real, uh, a really great experience all around. the the origin The origin of this, the company was with the Stanford Biodesign um, program. So that, for the folks who don't know about that in the audience, it starts with it's run by Stanford University and it starts with clinically unmet needs. The unmet need that the team was focused on, and this was over a decade ago. Um, they were start they were they were looking at the injuries that women sustain during childbirth to their pelvic floor. I think most first-time moms know that they don't want to tear. So the sort of the visible tissue um, that you can see, but also the team was working on the musculature in the pelvic floor that, that tears as the baby comes through. And you can only see that with ultrasound or MRI. And um, those injuries cause incontinence and prolapse later in life. Those are the muscles that hold our organs in place. And so um, that's really how it, how it started. And they started working on these childbirth injuries and that's why they called the company Materna. Um, then they launched a, uh, another product. Uh, this was, I guess, two or three years ago. Uh, our first product to actually hit the market was Millie treating pelvic pain. So, which has nothing to do with, with women being mothers per se. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, not to spoil it, but I think you're probably going to see some rebranding in the coming year or two. <laughs> nice. I always know there's a story. That's why I love that always question. A story, right? I've, I've only been incorporating it in the past, probably handful or more of podcasts, but the, I wish I would have done it right from the beginning because the stories behind these names are always funny or interesting, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Um, so lo and behold, we've been hearing your voice. We know a little bit about you at this point. We're going to learn a lot more. Who is Tracy McNeil? Tell us a little bit about where you came from and that journey as much as you want to share and as detailed or not as you want to share up until you became CEO of Materna Medical. Yeah. So who's Tracy McNeil? Well, I mean, gosh, we're all such multidimensional beings, right? I, at a professional level, I specialize in the commercialization of medical devices, I am an engineer undergrad and a Duke MBA. Um, and so I went to the business side pretty quickly. I started life as a chemical engineer at Merck, um, working in manufacturing and making the bulk active ingredient actually. So I was like hard hat and boots and running all over the world for five years, um, you know, running the reactions to make the, the active ingredient, which was really fun. Um, and about the last time I really did any real engineering. Um, but I, I, I realized pretty quickly, I, I enjoy the business side and I love the communication piece. And so I started my own company. I was CEO of my own company um, and broke it into two pieces and sold it and had a good enough time 
doing that, that um, I realized that I was, I, I got the bug, you know, I really got the business bug. And so then I joined a startup after I exited those two companies and, um, and that was an orthopedic company. So that was really my first chance to work in commercialization of medical devices. And it was a really wonderful experience. Um, after we finished our projects in that startup, I took a role. I, I needed a break because startups are a hassle and a half for all of you folks out there who are thinking about doing this for the first time. The highs are high and the lows are low. Um, it's never boring, but it is. it can be emotionally exhausting. And so I, I really wanted a break from startup life. And so I spent the next seven years working for mid-sized companies. So I worked for a family office for five years as the chief strategy officer. Um, and then I had a couple of years working for private equity. And that's where I was when, um, when Materna called. So uh, I remember thinking, uh, I remember thinking hard about it. My husband was was really encouraging. He was like, you know, it's just the best to have your own thing. Just go for it. And um, and in the end, it, it really has been, I wish I'd done it faster and with less reservation. It's been a lot, a lot of fun. And only because I know this, and I just think it's, it's quite unique. And we, we've talked about it briefly, but I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, your husband's also a CEO of a med tech startup. <laughs> Yes. company. Our poor children. That's what I was about to say. I mean, that's, that's quite a powerhouse. Two CEOs of medtech companies is quite amazing. That's, right. that's right. awesome. Yeah. Maybe he'll be another, another podcast episode. Yes. So then now that we know more about your background, tell us about Materna Medical. What is the company that you're leading and what are they doing? You, you've alluded to some of it, but let's, let's flush it out. And then also you can segue and go right into the great news of the, the most recent press release. Thank you. Well, so Materna Medical, at Materna Medical, we empower women to protect and restore their pelvic health. And so we're an OBGYN platform of medical devices that is defining a $6 billion market. Why do I say defining? Because our first product, Millie, uh, like I said, we launched it in 2019, but it's in a space that the FDA has not really been um, exploring in detail. Uh, and, and what has happened for that group of patients is that on average, they go five years without being diagnosed and see between three and four clinicians who can't help them because there's a dearth of clinical data and a dearth of FDA clearance in this product category. And so we really think that not only is our product better, it's the only expanding dilator in its space. Everything else is sort of 1800s level technology. Um, but it's also, uh, we, we also have the ability to get the data to patients that they need by being a real medical device company and working so collaboratively with the FDA um, to do that. So we, we think that we can sweep that category and fully define what it should be so that patients can get diagnosed. It's a very treatable condition. On average, three to six months, patients fully recover. So, um, but you know, the issue is they don't know what they have and the, their clinicians don't either. So, and, and that's the first time in my career I've had the opportunity to work on something like that. Uh, and you know, that's one of the funny parts about women's health is it's just so every time you turn over a rock, there's some crazy thing under there. Um, our second product, uh, is the, 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 is in a pivotal clinical trial right now, meaning when we finish this trial, we can apply for FDA clearance. That's the childbirth product. Um, it's currently called prep. I expect we'll rebrand, uh, before we fully launch, um, but the idea there is to prevent pelvic floor injuries during childbirth. And one of the main reasons I took the, the role is that in our pilot study, we reduced pelvic floor injury by 60%. And, you know, these are injuries that 
like I mentioned earlier, cause incontinence and prolapse. I'm not sure that the audience really realizes I didn't before I met Materna. 50% of women experience these symptoms by the age of 55. It's the number one reason that women are put into nursing homes in old age. And we're nine times more likely to have the, those symptoms if we've had a vaginal delivery. So, you know, the idea of being able to reduce those injuries during childbirth and enabling women to have a safer vaginal delivery without damage to their pelvic floor, um, you know, as we're looking at lifespans that could go to 100, um, those things matter. Women are having babies later. Babies are bigger because of prenatal nutrition. And yet women don't want to have a C-section if they don't have to, right? So that's really, it's easy to get up every day and work on these issues. So we expect that clinical trial to be done next year. So without further ado, on the, and actually before we go right into the great news, if you can talk about the funding aspect or the history of Materna Medical and where it's led to today, meaning I know that you've taken over as CEO, you mentioned that, but um, talk about when you took over, was it a purpose of raising capital because they couldn't raise it anymore? Or what's that history of Materna Medical funding aspect? To, and then where are we now? Right. So Materna was founded by one of the, I say he's just one of the goodest people I know. Um, Mark Yerovic was a, is an amazing person and really, I think will go down in history as a, a major contributor to women's health. Um, he was the, he was on the Stanford biodesign team that worked on these. Many of them were women, but he was the one that quit his day job and took this all the way, um, and stuck with it through thick and thin. I think he was a man ahead of his time. I think Materna was early for the concept. I mean, so that team came up with this idea in 2007, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in femtech, male, male and female, and and they all, until 2016, received feedback from investors that sounded something like women's health, come back when you have a real market. So I think, you know, the irony there is that childbirth is the number one reason for hospitalization worldwide. Most hospitals have a whole building just for having babies. So a company that could potentially transform the standard of care in the highest volume procedure in healthcare, uh, in my opinion, is quite a market. But for whatever reason, maybe it was just the way the story was being told or the way the story was being heard. That's not what was coming through. And so the company, you know, to Mark's credit, he raised three rounds including the series A. So actually the, the round that I just closed, we call it series A2. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, you know, three seed, two seed rounds and essentially a series A that converted everybody to equity. And um, he managed to do that and, and launch a product and get our, our, our childbirth product through, through um, the pilot study protect the IP well. I mean, these are all reasons I took the role. He did so much. And um, I do think that, and I've said all of this to him, um, and I think he, he agrees that it's just, a, it's so ironic that I think the company needed a woman to lead. And having been, so as an engineer and a finance person that specializes in M&A, I'm often the only woman in the room. And so I've spent my whole career saying that it doesn't matter what you look like, anybody can do the job. So the irony is not lost on me that this company needed a woman to, to run it. I think people just have too many questions otherwise. Like, why is this guy on about vaginal dilators? Um, 
right? It's and and it's it's stupid and it's headwinds uh, from our culture. There's a lot of stupid headwinds from our culture in women's health. So, um, but he he's he's a gracious person and um, he's no longer with the company, but is an ally and a, and a shareholder and um, it, it helps us out whenever we need it. So, so that's when I took over. And now here we are with you closing and I'll let you say the good news. What's Yeah, recently? well, so so then this is this is for all those folks out there that are trying to decide how much of a risk to take. Um, so the company was completely out of money when I joined, um, like nothing. That's and a big so risk for you taking a, over at that point. It's a big risk, right? Um, and so I, you know, so what did I do? Why did I, why did I take the job? I took the job because of all the things I said, huge market, almost no competition, um, well-protected IP, excellent clinical data, good early commercial data, um, clear regulatory path, lot, like all the things sort of with my engineer brain kind of checked it all off. Um, I felt like what the company needed was leadership and a story and uh, momentum into the commercial phase. Cause what gets you to regulatory and clinical milestones is not necessarily what gets you to commercial success. Those are often these things are a, a relay race. Um, so, and, you know, ideally we'll be acquired by a big company. They may or may not need me for, for all the things they're going to do, but you know, they're going to be the one to take it to the 3000 hospitals in the United States that see, see patients. Right. So, um, and I, you know, that's where I, I'm so passionate about creating a solid ecosystem in healthcare. Right. Um, so, but, you know, pragmatically you need money in order to get things done. So uh, several of the insiders agreed to put in a few hundred thousand dollars to give me a few months to make some progress. So I didn't have a lot of time. Um, and so I just hit the ground running when I, when I joined um, I am a commercial person. So while I had never quote unquote raised money before, um, I have been running sales and marketing for 15 years and sold companies and bought companies. And, you know, it's all kind of, to me, the same process. There's some lingo and some, maybe some legal steps and stuff that are unique, but in, in general, I didn't find it to be that different from anything else I've done in the commercial realm. Um, and so it was really just about getting clear really quickly why it mattered what we're doing. I think the products are interesting. And I think this is a pitfall. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Giovanni. But I think a lot of times founders and product people get really taken with the products themselves. Right. Notice I have not told you anything about the products, have I? Not yet. You know what they look like? You don't know how they work. Nope. <laughs> but that's not really what matters right? What matters is who you're serving, how you're going to help, how you're going to help the patient and how you're going to help your investors get a great return. Um, and, you know, so that was really the pivot I think I brought. We, we just weren't, we we're just not talking about the products. I'll tell you about them if you're interested, but it's really um, neither here nor there. And it never is. Right. Four micro questions, kind of Gatling gun questions that I want to have the audience hear. And then we're going to pick up right where you are right now. And, and hopefully you nor I will forget, but we're going to come right back to it. So the four yeah, okay. micro questions are quickly, what is the number and what is the fund that you just closed? Talk about that. It's a $10 million series A2. Um, I called it a series A2 because for a while I was calling it series B because B comes after A and we already closed an A. And what I learned was that the market really was hearing a series B be about a commercial round. And what this round is for is to finish our commercial and regulatory milestones. 
Number two, just to be clear, this is your very first time, at least on the onus of having it be on your back. This is your first time raising capital. Correct. Number three, do you believe that having been in startups in addition to PE, did that give you ammunition or experience or at least the mental fortitude to be able to raise money even though you've never done it before? Working for private equity didn't specifically help me with that, but it did help me know, I mean, I've been reporting to boards now for over a decade and that's a skill set for sure. So for folks who are thinking about coming into startups from big corporations and they've never reported to a board before, I think that's a, that's a big learning curve. That's something to start asking your friends about <laughs> before you're, you're reporting to boards, before you're sitting in the hot seat, you know, every board is different. It's, it's sort of like saying, I know how to manage a board is sort of like saying, I know how to be in a family, like lots of families are lots of different ways. Right. Um, so figuring out what your board is like, who's who and what's important to them, but it's always about making your numbers always, always. So boards always like CEOs that make their numbers. <laughs> Fourth, last question before we pick up the pieces. To your point, is raising capital, the process of raising capital, is it sales? Is it simply sales that you mentioned? You were alluding to the fact that you came from a commercial background and maybe that's some of the mental fortitude that gave you the ability to, to raise or at least helped you out raise capital. I mean, is raising capital simply selling and storytelling? I think so. I, I mean, not to oversimplify it, I think, but I've always been a, sort of aggressively in the camp around sales that you are never buying or selling. You're never selling a product. You're selling money, time, whatever it is that the other person will get from your product or service. That's what you're really selling. And so understanding, and then so, so some people talk about that as value proposition or um, you know, it, it's all, it all sounds really cliche, but the truth is if you don't understand why the other person, what the other person will get out of having your product or service, um, you will have a hard time selling it. And so, um, and I have tried to sell things that don't really add that much value and it's really hard. So I don't mean to make it seem like it's super simple. Um, in this case, it really, you're, you're selling a return. You're selling a return on investment. You're selling money in a way. The nice thing, and the reason I work in MedTech is that most people who invest in MedTech do it because they care. They, they could just make some, they could make more money somewhere else. It's, it's easier to make money somewhere else. So most of the people who invest in medical devices and MedTech are, have to, to some extent have a social impact somewhere in their being. First and foremost, though, they're looking for 10x. <laughs> yeah. Right. So going, I, I want to not deviate, go back to what we were talking about. You were talking about you had picked up the reins, you ran out of money, you took over it. You were now telling a story without selling anything about the products. You were alluding to all of that. And then mm -hmm. I think you were just about to get into, and I wanted to set the stage. That's why I asked all those questions. But um, now you're getting into how you raised that series A2. Yeah. Well, so taking over, I think, is in some ways easier than starting from scratch, unless you have a very, if, if 
very vast network of, of people. This is like your second or third startup and you know a lot of people already. So it was a little bit of a double-edged sword. So um, we had a lot of investors already. So that certainly could go back to them. What I learned when I went back to them is that they were very annoyed <laughs> that, that things had taken as long as they'd taken. And they, didn't, they weren't really that interested in putting in more money, um, at least not off the bat. And so um, I just started talking to everybody I knew. I, I turned over every stone and um, not, you know, not asking people. There's an old adage that I think is kind of true. Um, if you ask for advice, you get money. If you ask for money, you'll get advice. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of that. I think if you go in with a hard push of like, will you invest? I, I think it really turns people off. So I think it's more about um, explaining what, what you're trying to do and maybe inviting people. to so like a little bit more of an inviting energy. Um, but there were some really important people that said yes. And then it was really about building momentum and building momentum. And one of the wonderful things that Mark did was right before he handed the baton to me, he entered a competition that was only for women CEOs. It's called the Ignite Fire Pitch. Highly recommend it to any women CEOs or entrepreneurs out there. Um, they And they're, they're open right now for applications. And I entered, uh, well, he entered me and then I finished the whole thing. Um, he, he started the application two weeks before I joined. And, um, and we won. And so it was the first time in my life I got to hold the giant check on stage. You know, it was... Um, you know, and it's, it wasn't, it was $50,000, which is nice, but it was more the PR and the, you know, the picture with the cool little microphone where you look like you're having a Ted talk and um, those kinds of things. You know, I think it's about building, if you've, I'm, uh, my son is a boy scout and I, I, I love camping. And so if you've ever built a fire with just one match, right, you start with little things and you feed it with little things. You don't put a huge log on it. And that is how you build heat. And I really think that that's what we've done in the last couple of years at Materna, just build and build and build. I love that. So I have a bunch of questions coming out of this. Um, the round that you closed, we talked about, you said it was a $10 million round. I, I looked at some of the press releases and thank you for also sending them to me too. Thank you. There is a, a combination of both angel groups and traditional venture capitalists in there. And um, how did that work? I mean, I, I don't typically see that, right? It's either a seed round or maybe even a smaller A round that an entire angel group or cohort of angel groups would take over, um, or it's traditional venture capital. And maybe there's some alternative investments in there, family offices, things like that. But it was interesting to see angel groups in a traditional sense, mixing with a VC group. How did that work out? In this round, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, um, we are, this round that we just closed is known among CEOs as the valley of death. So it's the round you have to raise to get through FDA clearance. And there's not a lot of people who will invest in that stage. There's a lot of venture capital groups that'll invest $10 million after you've had, after you've shown you can get through FDA clearance. And so that'll be my next round. Um, and that I, you know, statistically is easier to raise um, because so much risk has been taken off the table. So this round was really a mixture of early stage venture and, and there's not a lot of those 
and, uh, and angels sort of, it was like a mega angel round in a way. So, um, yeah, I, do, I can go into more detail if you oh, want. That, that, that was interesting I, because typically speaking, when investors, especially as they educate themselves throughout the process, if you're a first-time capital raiser and never done this before, you're going after anybody who you think you can, right? And or if any, if they tell you that go after medical device or med tech investors, you go after every med tech investor. Sometimes they're only investing in growth stage. Other ones only are investing in Series A, and you don't really understand which levels until you get a bunch of no's and then you start refining your process. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was just interesting to see that angel groups and traditional VCs had joined on that round, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. How long did it take you? I mean, from the day that you picked up the pen or the proverbial whatever to say, today is the day that we're going to open up this whole capital raise and whether it's sitting down and putting your executive summary together, your, your pitch deck, whatever it was, but you were opening it to the time that the money hit the bank. How long is that process? And when you tell a first-time entrepreneur who's raising capital to budget um, time for a capital raise, what would you advise them? I would not expect to do it in less than six months. I think that once you have someone who says, yes, I want to lead your round or invest, well, this is for a this is really for the later. I mean, this is series A and beyond. I think seed rounds can come together faster because sometimes they have uh, they have simpler instruments, right? So it could be just a simple convertible note where you know it's three to five pages of documents and it's basically an IOU um, with really attractive terms, um, and you can put that together. It's a really easy to understand instrument, and you if you need a million dollars and you find five people who need to put in two hundred thousand. Um, you know, that could come together in three to four months um, from the time you start. Um, I mean, you hear these stories about people doing it in a week, but I think if you're going to play the odds um, and then when you start looking at equity, like a priced round where, um, so for those in the audience who don't know what the difference is in a priced round, you've got a lead typically a lead investor who will, who will decide what your company is worth and, you know, pre-revenue, that's a really tricky thing to decide. Um, and there's a whole lot of math that I love to geek out on uh, about that and, and maybe would be helpful for entrepreneurs to think about starting with the end in mind. Um, but anyway, the, I think by the time you find someone who says, I want to lead you around to the time the money's in the bank is about six months. Okay. And I've been getting wrapped up more and more in these particular conversations about what to call the round. And sometimes depending on like the story that you had mentioned, now this is a series A2 and you wanted to call it a series B because you already closed the series A, but it typically wasn't falling under that traditional definition. I've been hearing more and more of these startups that are in various rounds. You hear the pre-seed round, then the seed round, and now a post-seed round, and then a series A or a series A2. Um, and then some, and because sometimes once you get savvy enough to understand when you're reaching out to investors that they categorize themselves, that they invest in big pivotal clinical trials or about to be regulatory approved or cleared slash early stage commercial companies. Maybe that's one stage. Others are very definitive. We invest in R&D projects. We're typically series A. We may go into seed rounds, may. Um, and then others are later stage growth capital. Like purely if you have 10 million in revenue, that's where we're going to invest in something like that. Mm -hmm. But when you're advising early stage entrepreneurs and startups to put together their pitch decks, to put together their executive summaries, and you're doing that 
possibly cold reach out or even an email with someone's name that said, go refer me to that person. And you're saying I'm raising 10 million series A or C or whatever it may be. Do you find that labeling your raise a certain name when it possibly could fall out of that traditional sense of what generally people think, could it have a, a negative ramification on investors even looking at whatever you're sending them? I mean, is there any downfall to categorizing yourself? Yeah, I think, I think for sure. And that, that's kind of what I was hitting was that the way it was coming up for me was that I would send the note saying, Hey, I'm raising my series B. Are you interested in discussing? They they're like, Oh yeah, I'm a B investor. And they look at it and like, Oh, you don't have FDA clearance. I'm, I don't understand why you're raising a B. Um, and so there were enough of those that I, I took a step back and paused. You know, the board had, we had the conversation at the board, what to call it. And we decided to call it a B because we'd already done the A and we felt like it was silly to come up with these, you know, but they, but really we were in an interim stage. And I, I think I've never done the kind of shenanigans with the post and the pre and the, all of that stuff. Um, but those are typically not price rounds. And so my made up answer about what's probably going on there is that entrepreneurs raise what they can raise and you get to as much of the next milestone as you can with what you have before you have to raise again. And, um, you know, you're getting done if I'm, I wasn't the founder, so I didn't have any of this, um, sort of, uh, conflict of interest and it, it didn't My compensation was not such that I, I was ambivalent about the valuation. Um, but you know, if, if I'm a founder and I'm starting from owning hundred percent of the company, um, you know, the more times I have to raise, the more I'm getting diluted, um, which is normal. And founders should not worry about that because owning 5% of something that's really huge is better than owning hundred percent of nothing. <laughs> so I love that. I love, and also I love the reminder because th there's actually a, a Harvard Business Review called the Founder's Dilemma, and there's this org or not org chart, but a, a a chart rather that's talking about the rich versus king theory, and the rich CEOs are the ones that recognize what you just shared, where they have no problem giving up portions of ownership as long as they're building an executive team around you and making milestones and getting traction and leading to something that's going to have a meaningful exit versus the King theory, which is possibly that typical founder who just, this is my baby and I'm not going to let it go. And sometimes at the detriment of the company or slowing things down. So I'm glad that you brought that up because it's a, it's a problem. It's the founder's dilemma. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with your baby and, and what, you know, imagine yourself and, and, you know, look, some people do it. Look at Mark Zuckerberg and Be Bezos. I mean, people do it, but it's rare. Yeah. So on that, a couple more, and I'm going to combine these questions. First time capital raiser, what are the hardest challenges or learning curves that you had to learn from that you just didn't recognize taking over the position and having being responsible for raising capital? What were some of those, wow, I had no idea that this was going to happen in capital raising. And that was a lot more challenging than I expected. And then, so one of the hard stuff, that's part A. Part B is for all those metaphorically or proverbial Tracy's who have never raised money yet, who are out there wanting to be MedTech entrepreneurs or first time CEOs taking over companies who have not raised capital, what would you advise them to start thinking about or preparing or just be aware of in terms of raising capital for the first time if you haven't done it? So hard things and advice. Yeah. So I think 
there were two things that I wasn't expecting COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> having to do in a pandemic, um, that that's was a really one. a drag. That's a big one. That was really a drag. <laughs> um, then the second one was kind of a, it was a women's health, women's CEO related. Aha. Uh-huh. My hypothesis going in was that it would be better to talk to the women in venture than men because women would understand the products and they would understand the market. And, and that, that is true. They always took my call and they were always really interested. Like I never, I never had, I don't think I ever had a single woman say, I don't get it. (laughs) Um, Whereas a lot of men did Um, a lot of men were like, well, I've never heard of this. Is this a thing? (laughs) And whereas like women know this is a thing. So, um, However, where we are as an ecosystem, a lot of the women in venture are not general partners. And so maybe just sort of a truism zooming out of the male-female piece is that the people that will make the decision are the general partners. And so the longer you spend not talking to them, the more time you're potentially wasting of yours and the other parties, right? So if, you, if you're talking to an associate or a venture partner or um, you know, some other person in, in the firm that's a friendly, um, but not the, not the general partners, um, you know, you haven't, you're not talking to the decision maker. And so right now, you know, women are sort of five to 7% of that group and the other, you know, 90 plus percent are men. Um, and in the end, we, our round was led by an incredibly wonderful group of men who care about their wives and daughters and that they know that when women are happy, everyone is happier. (laughs) And, you know, it doesn't matter. And I'm back to my, my fundamental belief, which is it doesn't matter what you look like and we're all in this together. So connecting some of these dots of what you're sharing and I'm creating a story out of it. So I'm here to either have you validate it or disprove it is because of that food chain and those decision makers and simply a large portion of the population who doesn't even know about women's health or know a lot about women's health. Do you think because of how the food chain is currently organized, is that holding back the explosion of women's health? Oh yeah. So I have this keynote that I give on, on the cycle of innovation in women's health. I'll try to do it in kind of two minutes here, but but the, the cycle of innovation in, in, med, in med tech, just for everybody, you know, it typically would start with the patient going to their doctor and saying, hey, you know, this doesn't feel good. Something's wrong. The clinician ideally would have some clinical data to draw from, say, yes, I know what that is. There's all of this stuff. I saw this at a conference or whatever. Here's the standard of care. A lot of times the clinician thinks the standard of care should be better and might work with somebody like myself to create a better mousetrap, right? A lot of KOLs do that. And then someone like me would go to an investor and say, hey, you know, there's a lot of people like this patient. And we think that we could really have something. The investor says, yeah, that's a lot of people. And you've got a good idea. They invest, you create something, and then the big company buys it and then can put it at scale and get it back to the patient that had the problem in the first place. Like that's how that's supposed to work. And it's really broken in every way in women's health. So starting with the patient, women don't talk to their doctors about a lot of their problems. Um, women and and then clinicians actually don't have a lot of clinical data to draw from, especially in our space. Um, Obstetricians have nothing to turn to in terms of preventing pelvic floor injuries. There's nothing on the market. We're a de novo device. 
So, um, and with, with Millie, our pelvic pain device, most, you know, half of our market is menopausal. So um, there are 63 million Americans in menopause and yet 80% of OBGYN residents graduating, 80% have no training in menopause. So there's just a real problem there with just the clinical research that's available to doctors. And then, you know, and entrepreneurs then don't have, there's that piece is kind of disconnected. So the clinicians aren't necessarily thinking about it. And then investors are pattern seekers, right? They want to look at all the companies who've made a lot of money in your space, right? But there aren't a lot of really great exits in women's health for all the reasons we've talked about, right? And so, so the big companies continue to not really have a lot of great solutions for patients. And so I think that and, and my investors also feel this way, that the entrepreneurs and the investors are best positioned to intervene in this cycle and turn it into a positive cycle. So there's been some really great exits in women's health lately. We expect to be another one and we want to make it better for the next group because there are so many issues and not just in gynecology, right? There are a lot of issues in healthcare that affect women disproportionately. So women are seven times more likely to have migraines women are much more likely to have autoimmune disorders. Um, and then there's uh, ways that conditions affect women differently. So that classic heart attack with the, with the shooting pain down the left arm, we've learned that that's how that affects men. It's much more likely to look like nausea or back pain in a woman. And so women typically don't get to the hospital as quickly as they should for a heart attack because they're looking for male symptoms. So all this is to say, there is much work to be done. And part of what we wanna show is we don't want to just get these products to the patients that need them. We want to really show that when we invest in women, we all win. I love that phrase. We all win when you invest in women. I like that. Um, the, the topic of women's health playing in the grander med tech industry. We talk often about med tech versus biopharma or biotech, where one of the main problems is there's just simply fewer acquirers in med tech than there is in biopharma. There's a lot more there. When then you look into the med tech industry and start parsing it out, there's assumptively even fewer acquirers for women's health technology. One that sticks out because they've been good at branding about it is Hologic, but just mm -hmm. out there, A, is that a problem? Meaning already the med tech acquirer or acquisition market who could be acquirers is small to begin with, let alone then the secondary market of women's health, or I should say specific market of women's health, um, having even fewer acquirers. Is that a problem for even building up that med tech ecosystem? It, it was a huge problem. I think it is less of a problem now. Uh, I think the Me Too movement in 2016, I think the the political tides that we saw since 2016, I think it activated a lot of people. And so there are, a, I mean, so femtech was coined as a, as a term in 2016. So I really think this last five years has seen an enormous shift in those tides. And I think based on my experience, most of the big medtech companies are aware that they have diversity and inclusion problems, not just at their leadership level, but also in their patient, their, their clinical research populations don't trend towards equal demographics. There are some big disparities in racial aspects of healthcare across the board. And I think that, and I, because I sit on the board at Avamed, um, they, they know, these companies know. 
And they're also aware that, um, and so I've talked to a lot of strategics that are not obvious fits for OBGYN, and yet they're watching because I think they're realizing that women make 80% of the healthcare decisions for their family. They're disproportionate users of healthcare. So women are more likely to go to the doctor um, and they're more likely to take their family to the doctor. They're likely to be caregivers and they're making choices about how, how to use healthcare services and products. So they're all aware that women in their forties are the center of the universe, really in their, in their target market, whatever their situation. So what I think is they're all trying to figure out the women's health playbook. And so I think, um, you know, I'll just say for, from our perspective as an OBGYN company, this is a very specialized part of women's health. Um, there are enough acquirers that I'm not worried about it. And, you know, Olivia Health just had a wonderful exit, um, single 510K device for $240 million in April. Um, great exit. And they are in labor and delivery, just like us. It's a postpartum hemorrhage product, which is so important because black moms are more likely to bleed to death by a lot than white moms in the United States. And women in the United States are, I think we're 55th in the world of maternal mortality. Wow. 54 countries have better mortality rates than we do. So a lot to do in postpartum hemorrhage. And they're really, they've got a great product and they really care about what they're doing. And I think the world is seeing, hey, we got to get on this. And they were bought by a really unexpected player who was going to see Merck, Organon, acquire them. A pharma company making a play into women's health just spun out a $6 billion freestanding women's health company in devices. So, Well, I, I will be that typical situation. I'm learning a lot right now as you're saying this. So thank you for sharing this with, I'm sure that the audience is also learning a lot as well. I had no idea. So it's good to know that there's a lot of upswing. And also this has been quite a strong five, six years for Femtech, even coining the phrase. Um, then let me just ask a very general question. We've touched on it and we've massaged it with all the topics that we've been talking about. Um, is it simply challenging to be a woman raising capital? I don't think so. I mean, it hasn't been for me, um, but I've always, I mean, I've never played the, I mean, I've never really listened to the odds when I've made my decisions in life. Right. I mean, I do remember when I was 15 or 16 and I decided I wanted to go to engineering school. I did have um, people say, you'll never get into engineering school. You're a girl. And this is like unimaginable that anybody would, I mean, I remember hearing it and thinking, well, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just always been a little, um, I just kind of thick skin about it. Like, I just don't, I just don't think about it like that. Yeah. And I don't think anybody should think about it like that. I mean, I, I think there's at least in my little echo chamber bubble that I have created for myself, I am surrounded by people who are actively looking for diversity, actively looking for realizing that when they are having a panel of speakers that are all middle-aged white guys, they look very old fashioned and out of touch. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, it's not hard to find diversity. People are not hiding from you. <laughs> so um, I think it's really, it's, it's all swinging in the right direction. So part of Materna's slogan or phrase is empowering women. And going back to how you've raised your capital, one of them that's sticking out that I happen to know about before this podcast, Ostia Angels, right? And which is an angel group that specifically 
likes to invest, prefers to invest in women-led organizations and companies. You had mentioned to me prior to this that there's even more that were involved in the, the Series A2 that you had raised. So just speaking of the absolute specificity of being a woman CEO and entrepreneur representing a women's health organization startup, going after and putting together a process to go out and reach out to investors. Was it part of your strategy to specifically find the Ostias of the world or how does someone even find them? And then given the paucity of technology in femtech, and even though it's now a growing technology sector, are we going to start seeing more and more of these angels or even investors specifically targeting women-led organizations? I, I just want to start focusing on investors that are honing in on the fact that they represent and brand themselves as women-led organization investors. Definitely. I think you're definitely going to see, I see it everywhere. Lots of new funds popping up that are, that are focusing on diverse founders and, um, and companies that are serving diverse populations. So um, yes, it was absolutely part of my strategy is to hit every single one of those, make sure all of them knew who we were and why, why what we're doing mattered. Um, you know, I think it, you, you, you touched on something important earlier, which is really understanding who you're talking to. So I'll, I'll say, for example, Rhea Ventures, amazing fund, amazing group. They passed on Materna because we were not close enough to their core mandate of really serving under, um, socioeconomically disadvantaged populations of women. Millie is a patient pay model. It's just never going to get there. And I understood and I agreed. We were, we were just like left of center for them, but they loved us and we love them. And we, we all are kind of pulling in the same direction here. And I think it's important not to take that stuff personally. Um, you know, it has to be the right fit for your, for your, um, your investor's thesis. But that said, we had a lot of them. So ASIA is one. And in terms of um, encouraging first-time entrepreneurs not to give up because that grit is part of this. So ASIA has a, you should go on their website, ASIA.org, I believe is their website. Um, they have a trademarked process called the SIFT process, which is seven, I think, different stages that purposely blind the reviewers from the, the founder. You don't actually get to talk to anybody for several stages. They don't get to see what you look like. They can't hear what you say. You're, you have to pass their objective criteria. And I failed the first time I went in. They didn't like that we had two products and they didn't like that I was so new. Um, but you know, a year later, I have made a lot of progress. We'd raised a couple million dollars on a bridge round and, um, and someone said, you know, just try again. And I thought, okay, I'll try again. And, and we made it. So Astia has two portions. They have a, an angel group and they have a venture fund. The angel group is who invested in us this time. And uh, it was really a joy to work with them. We had a couple of other groups like that. I want a big shout out to Golden Seeds. So Golden Seeds is another femtech investor group focused on helping women learn how to be investors because statistically women are more likely to be philanthropic givers than to be investors. And what, so Golden Seeds wants to help bring more women into that group. Um, Golden Seeds has an angel group and a venture fund in this round, both invested in Materna. And I felt so honored to make it through their venture fund and to have the opportunity to meet all these incredible women 
uh, wealthy women investors who chose to give their time and energy to listen to my pitch um, and then invested not once, but twice, some of them. So um, that really felt great. Um, in addition, we had the Shatter Fund, which is, uh, you should, I think that it's shatterfund.com. Um, they had, that's a, a fund, their first fund was really for women-led companies. I think they're moving more for, towards all kinds of diverse founders. And we had um, two more. We had um, the Women's Venture Capital Fund. So they they founded their fund before it was cool. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and also a huge honor, we were their first healthcare investment. So they've invested in all kinds of things and they've been watching healthcare deals for quite a while. Um, and to be the one that made it through their hurdle, they've looked at hundreds of healthcare deals to be the one that they chose felt so good. And they're such a cool group. Um, and then last, uh, we also received investment from Black Capital. And this is a group um, led by uh, former Sacramento mayor and uh, NBA basketball player, Kevin Johnson. And uh, they're seeking in, uh, entrepreneurs who are African-American as well as entrepreneurs who are serving Black populations. And we definitely are working with PrEP to make sure that our clinical research is focused in that area, Black and Hispanic patients do under enroll per capita. So you got to really make sure you're going after them. And uh, it is our business plan to make sure we're covered for all women, not just the wealthy ones. So it really, really worked out great. I have to only assume that our audience has learned a tremendous amount today about Femtech and also obviously Materna Medical and what it's like to be a woman leading a women's health startup company within Femtech and also raising capital with the constraints and also the wide open landscape of opportunity. Um, I wanna leave off with this last question. And I love this question uh, for, for all those boards out there who may be listening right now. So um, as a recruiter myself who works with sometimes venture capitalists who will hire me to put in a new CEO or even sometimes directly founder CEOs who wanna replace themselves with a new CEO, there's often a mandate of, I need this person to have capital raising experience. And there are a plethora of examples of CEOs who have taken over, who are first time CEOs who have successfully closed rounds. You're one of them. So my, my question for you is, and it ties into the advice of those who want to become CEOs who have never raised capital before, or even COOs or everyone who's been close to the table and still never had to put their name on it. And they still want to go out and raise capital. Do you believe that in order to be a great CEO of a company, an early stage company specifically, do you believe that it helps to have capital raising experience? Do you need capital raising experience? Or is there some other facet of one's being or DNA or characteristic or skill set that could supplement where it doesn't matter if you have capital raising experience or not. You could still be a very successful first-timer CEO and raise capital. Well, I think that anything is possible. If my life has taught me anything, it's that anything is possible. So I don't think there are any hard and fast rules. I do think that anybody who's a CEO has strengths and weaknesses because nobody had, you can't, I mean, unless you're 200 years old, you're not going to have enough experience in all the things that you're going to need to oversee. So 
my advice, if you don't have capital raising experience, you need to surround yourself with people who are going to help you because it is not obvious how to do it. <laughs> and no one has time to explain it to you. So there's some great books out there. The Secret of Sand Hill Road, I think is a great book. Definitely read that book if you haven't and you're thinking about raising capital and you've never done it before. Um, I think that, you know, you need some mentors who will be your, you know, could be your phone a friend. I'm, I'm this person for a few folks, like when you're sitting in the conference room and someone throws out some piece of lingo, you don't know what it is, but it sounds important. You need that person. Um, you need a CFO, you need a friendly attorney, um, cause you don't want to be asking your board they're, in the end, they're your boss. They, they should be there to support you but you need to have a, a, a network of folks that are gonna level you up so that, look, everybody does it for the first time, right? And so you gotta have those people. For me, that's been clinical research. So the finance piece was a strong suit for me. This is the first time I've ever seen a clinical, clinical trial. Boy, am I glad that I have a great clinical research leader. <laughs> <laughs> I learn from her every day. Um, and it's, that's just how it is being a CEO. You, you, you have to have learner's mind and you can't, you can't pretend that you know something you don't you gotta be honest about it. So I, I, before we leave off, so thank you for bringing up the book secrets of Sand Hill road for all those listening out there. Tracy's read it. I've read it. I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. It's it's by Scott Cooper. And if we did read, not, we did not rehearse this. I didn't know you know that book. It's such oh, a great book. It's absolutely. so important. Oh, and, and that it's heavily, heavily recommended by CEOs flying around the medtech space. And obviously the book is industry agnostic, but it's a wonderful, wonderful book. If you want to learn the foundation and even just some of the more colorful complexities of in a real world landscape of, of raising capital. So thank you for bringing that up. It's by Scott Cooper, who is actually the director of finance at a company called Cloud, Cloud Cloud, or I'm forgetting. But the, the, the purpose that I wanted to bring this up is the second book that I heavily recommend to those listening, and Tracy, if you haven't read it yourself, is actually by Ben Horowitz. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and I'm reading it right now. Oh, really? The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Building a Business When There Are No Easy Answers by Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. And so I would heavily recommend that book, but take Tracy's opinion first on definitely reading The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. It's an absolutely phenomenal read for raising capital. So. I have a policy of always reading books that are recommended to me, so I'm on it the hard thing about hard things. And actually it's certainly within the first, I want to say two or three chapters of secrets of Sand Hill road, Scott Cooper actually references that book. So you can't, oh, okay. All right. can't forget it. I'll, I'll follow up. But Tracy McNeil, CEO, Materna medical successfully raising a series a two ten million million. Congratulations first and foremost. And thank you so much for your time on sharing your wisdom, your advice, your stories with us here. This is MedTech Money. And I usually say our slogan, which is demystifying raising capital. But today I'll use yours, which is when you invest in women, everyone wins. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's lovely. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day and thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.